Let's take our Bibles and go to John chapter number two. John chapter number two. And if you're able, I would invite you to stand. We're going to read the first 11 verses of this scripture here. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governors of the feast, and they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. When men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to be back in your house tonight. I'm thankful for this great church and the opportunity that you've given me to speak here tonight. But Lord, I do fully understand and I grasp the fact that, Lord, if anything of any value is going to take place here tonight, it's going to be because you do it. And so I pray that you would just do your work in our hearts and lives, that you'd help us through your word, give me liberty, give me clear thoughts, and we'll thank you in advance for what you're going to do in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. This text records the first of many miracles of our Lord. And as we enter into this text, I believe tonight we're going to see a wonderful truth. But let me first set the background for you. This scene is, of course, a village wedding feast. Jewish law would have required that weddings would take place on a Wednesday. And in Palestine, weddings would have been of the most notable of occasions. In fact, they tell us that they would have lasted far longer than just a day. They would have lasted for an entire week. The wedding ceremony itself would take place in the evening. Before that, there would be a great feast where everybody would come together. And then after the ceremony took place, the couple would be taken to their home. By this time, it would be dark. And all those in attendance at the wedding would take part of this walking them home. And it, it would have looked like in our minds more of maybe a parade because they would have gone through the streets with lamps and torches. They would have had a canopy that would have been over top of the bride and groom. 
And as they took them from where the wedding and the wedding feast took place and they took them to their new home, they would have taken the longest possible route so that they would go through as much of the city as possible so that all of the people in the city that didn't attend could come out and wish the new couple well. Well, the new merely couple, unlike in our culture, they wouldn't go away for a honeymoon. But in fact, they would stay home and would have what we would think of as an open house for an entire week. The, the bride and the groom would wear crowns and they would continue to wear their bridal robes. And for that entire week, they would be treated as king and queen. And in a life where there was a lot of poverty, and in a life where there was constant work, this week of festivity it would be known as one of the most joyous occasions in all of that culture. And it was a happy time just like this that Jesus was invited to and he gladly shared. But something went wrong. Very wrong. For a Jewish feast, wine was essential. Without wine, the rabbi said, there would be no joy. No, it wasn't the type of wine that you would think or drinking that you would think. In fact, drunkenness would have been a great disgrace. But there was a real problem in the fact that they ran out of wine. It seems clear to me from this text that this would have been a, a special wedding. And it would have been somebody closely associated with the family of Christ. Mary, the mother of Jesus, had a very instrumental part and, and high-profile part in this wedding, which leads us to believe that there was some relation there. But again, a great problem occurs when they run out of wine. So the text opens and Mary goes to Jesus. She confronts him with this problem. And Jesus responds and to her, and he says in verse 5, that, or in verse 4, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now in our ears and in our English language, that, that sounds pretty abrupt. It sounds like pretty tough speaking. But that's not the way it is. In fact, the, the term woman there, it wasn't a disrespectful term or a, wasn't used in a disrespectful way. We know that, of course. The English language doesn't have maybe an, even an adequate word to describe that word woman, but the closest would be ma'am or lady. And so, so when Jesus looks at his mom and he says woman, he's saying ma'am or lady. And then the phrase that follows that might cause us some, some, some deep thinking, but it says, have I, what have I to do with thee? And that phrase again was also a, a common conver conversational phrase and it simply carried the meaning, don't worry. Leave things to me. I'll handle them in my own way. And so when you, you read it in that terms, it, you understand it wasn't disrespectful. He's looking at her and he's saying, ma'am, lady, don't worry. Leave things to me. I'm in control of the situation. I'm going to handle it. And so Mary in confidence turns to the servants that are there. And she says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. At the door, there were six great water pots. The Bible says they contain two or three firkins apiece. A firkins represents a Hebrew measure called a bath, which is a measure which equivalent to about eight or nine gallons. And so do the math. And these jars, these water pots, they would have held somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons apiece. And here's what Jesus does. 
he commands his servants and he said, see these water pots, fill them with water. And they were simply obedient and they did what he told them to do. And, and they filled them with water. And then he gives the command, draw out and give to the governor of the feast. And the result is pretty clear. It is the best wine that this man has ever tasted, which is really an incredible story. But like I said this morning, I think it's more than a story. I think there is something that God wants us to have today. I think there's a truth here behind this story that can be helpful to us even in this missions month. And so the text to me, it breaks down in, in really two different areas. You, you have the command and the miracle, or what I would refer to as the natural and the supernatural. And so we understand that this entire miracle, it begins with Jesus issuing a command. Now let me say some things about that command and about the commands that he gives us. When Christ is about to bestow a blessing, he almost always issues a command first. And so blessing is here, command is here. The only way to get here is through following the command. In other words, here's a blind man. Christ is about to give him sight. He puts clays on his eyes, and then he says a command. Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. Here's another man and his arm is swinging at his side. It's useless to him. Christ is going to restore it. But before he can restore his arm, he says, stretch forth thy hand. He gives a command. And the principle goes so far as even in places where we think it wouldn't be applicable, it is because in one situation we find a child that lay dead and he says to the child, he gives a command and says, made arise. Or to Lazarus, who by this time stinks because he's been dead for four days and he cries out a command, Lazarus, come forth. And thus he bestows the benefit, the blessing after the command is followed. Now we're going to, of course, you know where we're going. We're going we're gonna to begin to hone in and focus in on giving and missions tonight. And so we're going to talk about that. I'm, I'm not ashamed to say we're going to talk about that. But the Bible commands the believer to give. I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know tonight, but God owns everything we have. In fact, I, I, I view it this way. God is a very, very generous God. A God that allows me to keep the percentage that I get to keep and only have to give such a small percentage back to Him when He owns it all anyways. So if you give 10% to tithe and 10% to missions, you get to keep 80%. That's a pretty good deal when it all belongs to God in the first place. And we understand when we give, God blesses those who give. You know this verse. Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. So what is he telling us? He's telling us a command. He's saying, you give. And when you give, on the other side of that command, there is blessings. 
See, so many people live by the philosophy, God, I, I want you to show me, and once you show me, once you do for me, then God, I'll do something for you. But you understand in God's economy, it's exactly opposite. God says, no, you do first, and then I'll show you. And he always does. Number two, I see this about the command. The command is to be, not to be questioned, but it's simply to be obeyed. Uh, go back to this story, imagine this. They're out of wine. I mean, everybody at this great wedding feast, they're beside themselves. All the ladies that are in charge, they don't know what they're going to do. Jesus shows up. Mary's like, hey, I got this. My son, he can handle this. This is right up his alley. He, he's, he's good at taking care of things like this. And so everybody looks at Jesus and they're waiting and they're thinking he's going to do something amazing. And Jesus says, oh, oh, okay, here's some water pots. We can use those. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we can use those. Fill those up. We'll have enough wine to last a week. This is going to be great. And, and he looks at him and he says, fill them with water. Now, we know the story. But step back a little bit. Here's Mary, here's the servants, here's everybody else in charge. If I was there, I would probably have said, um, okay, Jesus, I don't know if you understand the problem. We have plenty of water. We don't need any more of that, okay? We can have all the water we need. It's wine that we're out of. But did you notice that the servants simply obeyed? They didn't question. He said, do this. Fill the water pots. It left a lot of reasons to question things. And by the way, when it comes to giving, we can ask a lot of questions. When it comes to getting involved in missions, we can ask a lot of questions. Can I afford this? What about the economy? What happens in this next election? What if the church doesn't use my money wisely? What if the missionaries don't use our money wisely? What if, what if, what if? But I want you to see from this text that the commands of God are not to be questioned. They're simply to be obeyed. Then I want you to see this. The command, it was a simple command. A simple command. I want to show you something tonight. I don't have a lot of talents, a lot of abilities, but watch this. No, no, just watch what I'm about to do. It's going to blow your mind. Wow. Seriously, no applause. I mean, I was expecting like something big, like, you know, when Texas scored that touchdown in the fourth quarter and the crowd, well, they all went quiet because it was in Tuscaloosa, but in the hotel room, we went crazy and it was, I was expecting it. Did you not see what I just did? I know, I know. I poured water in the pot. That's pretty amazing, wasn't it? I mean, I know for like years to come, you're going to be like, you remember when that preacher from Texas came and what he did? He poured water into a jug. That was so awesome. I've never seen anything like it. No, of course you have. It's simple. It's so simple. But wait, time out. What, what command does God give any one of us that isn't simple? Now, I, I challenge you to bring one command that he gives any one of us that not even the smallest child can do. Yeah. 
It's simple. We just have to do it. The remand, the command, number four, it requires continuous effort. By the way, many of the commands of God require continuous effort. The, the servants here in this text, there's no way they would have been able to bring 20 to 30 gallons of water at a time and do that in one trip. They would have had to go to the well with whatever mechanism they had, fill it up and bring it back and go back and bring it back and go back and bring it back. Hey, that sounds a lot like giving, like faith promise, like faithfulness to the church, like prayer. It's something we do over and over and over and over and over again. The Bible says pray without ceasing. Be continual. The Bible says, he that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed. It, it, it brings the idea of farming into our minds. And how many of you have ever been around farming or no farming? You know that it's not something you do one season and then retire from. It's something you do year after year after year after year. Give, the Bible tells us, on the first day of the week. In other words, these commands are not one-time request, but something that takes continuous action that requires faithfulness. But then I want you to see this. The command should be carried out with zeal. Did you notice in the text where it says that they filled the water pots in verse number 7? But look at the last part of that verse. They filled them up to the brim. They, they filled them completely full. I don't think you would have got another drop in those water pots. See, God asked them to do something very simple and very natural. Fill the water pots. Something that we could bring children up here and they could do it. Would it take some effort? Yes. Would it take some continual action? Yes. Was it done with zeal? Absolutely. They did it to the very best of their ability. They gave everything they had to this task. So that in verse 8, the Bible says, He saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he knew not whence it was, but the servants who drew the water knew. And the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now told you the command. I, I, I would say it this way. They did the natural. They did what was simple. But when they did the natural, the miracle took place. That's when God showed up, took that they did that was so simple and so natural, and God did the supernatural with it. They were willing to do something common, and therefore God was will, able to show up and do something uncommon. They were willing to show up and do the most ordinary thing, and God showed up and did the most extraordinary thing. There was nothing uncommon about pots filled with water, yet because they were obedient, God stepped in and took the common and did the uncommon. He took the natural and did the supernatural. He took the ordinary, and He did the extraordinary. Here's what I want you to understand tonight. Our service to God, all that we do, it's nothing more than filling water pots with water. Let me, let me illustrate it a little bit and maybe apply it and we'll be done. We, uh, like you, take groups to camp every year. 
And from the time I was a youth pastor, even into being a pastor, one of the things that, that I always wanted to do is before we would leave a, a week of camp, we would always take our kids and, and we would take them apart to a, a place away from the camp, away from everybody, and, and we would spend time and, and do testimonies. And I wanted to just get them away from everything and, and, and a couple of things. I, I would I'd always kind of circle them up and, and I'd tell them, all right, you at least have to tell me two things. You have to tell me when you got saved and you have to tell me what God did in your heart this week. And so we would go around and, and we would do that. And I've always done it. And it seems like most of the years you would have somebody that wasn't saved that would get saved. And then because of the testimony of other kids and what God did in their life, God would start getting a hold of other lives. And some of the best services and best revival parts of camp was this testimony service that we would do. And so on this given year, we, we loaded everybody up and we, we went to this special place where no one else would bother us and no one else would be around. And, and we got around in a circle and I'm telling you, testimonies were good and kids were crying and telling me all the things that God did in their hearts and lives and, and just wonderful things were happening. And then we get to this one particular girl whose parents really didn't come, but she had been coming and, and, and she had been faithful, but we got to her and, and she, she acted like she wanted to talk, and then she just kind of froze. And, and then she acted like she wanted to say something, and then she just kind of froze. And then she started crying, and she just said, I can't do it. And usually I'd be like, no, 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 you need to do it. But I'm telling you, this girl was, I mean, she was uncontrollable, sobbing. And so I just decided we're just going to pass her up, and we went around the rest. And so we got back in the vehicles, and we were headed back to camp after the testimony service. And I made certain that this young lady was in my car with several other kids. And, and it happened to be several other young ladies that was there in the vehicle with us. And we're, we're coming back to camp, and, and finally this little girl from the back, she says, she says, can I tell you why I didn't give my testimony? I said, sure, I'd love to hear it. She said, all these people talking about being saved and all these people talking about all these things. She said, my mom's not saved. She said, my mom is going to go to hell. My, my mom is so resistant to everything about church. She doesn't even want me coming. And she's so resistant to all this. And every time I try to talk to her, she just gets so angry. And she gets so mad. And she's like, I am so heartbroken. And all week, all I can think about is my mom. And my mom's going to go to hell. And all week long, I've been going to the altar. I've been praying for my mom. And I just don't know what to do anymore. And I can't give my testimony because I'm so heartbroken. I can't even get the words out without crying. So I told her. I wish I had... As a pastor, as a youth pastor, I, I wish that I had something easy that I could say or do that would just magically make everything better, but I, I don't. I said, but what we can do is we can pray. I said, do you believe that God can answer prayer? I do. So how about the rest of you? Do you believe God can answer prayer? I do. I said, okay, so before we get out of this vehicle, let's pray. Now, I'm, I'm going to just give a little bit of vulnerability here. I knew the situation. I knew the lady. So I was talking real preacher terms and being the real spiritual one, but I was thinking even as I was praying, there is not very much chance this lady's ever going to come to church. She is so closed off. She is so angry toward church and the gospel. 
But, you know, I'll do the pastoral thing and I'll pray. So we did. That's all we could do. Simple. We prayed. This was a Friday, we were on Thursday. On Friday we went home, or no, it was on Friday. On Friday night we went home. And, and when we got home, unbeknownst to me, the, the girls that were there in that group had all covenanted that they would just spend the entire day on that Saturday praying. And, and so I kind of went on about just getting ready for Sunday. And, and they didn't even tell me. But like all of them were talking to each other, texting each other, calling each other. And, and they were just praying just a little bit all day. Simple stuff. Good. Sunday morning, they show up to church. They show up early. They said, Pastor, do you think it'd be okay if, if, if we just all got together in a classroom or something? We prayed. And, and I said, absolutely. That's, I would love that. I think that would be great. In the, in the back of my mind, I'm still thinking, it's not going to really probably help, but let's trust God. Maybe he'll do something here. And all of these girls, they go into this room and they pray. Her younger sister's getting baptized that day. Because her younger sister is getting baptized, Veronica shows up at church. I get up to preach. I haven't seen anybody that looks like this today. Um, maybe there is someone, but I would hope nobody knows me enough that there's anybody like at my church that just despises me. And, and so, um, but I, I'm preaching and I am telling you, I mean, there's just daggers coming out of this lady's eyes. I mean, you could just tell she does not like me. She does not like our church. She doesn't like what we stand for. And I mean, she is just shooting daggers through me. I get to the invitation, I make certain that I give a clear gospel presentation, and everybody else stands, she won't even stand, she just sits there with her arms folded. But all those girls got up and went to the altar, and they prayed for Veronica. Services ended, we baptized this little sister, we all went out into the foyer, I'm standing out there, I'm shaking hands. And every pastor knows what this is like when somebody is coming right at you and they don't like you and they're about to tell you everything that you've done wrong and they love to do it in the foyer in front of everybody. And I mean, I look over and here's Veronica and I mean, she's marching at me. She gets right up to me. And she sticks her finger in my face. She said, my daughter tells me I'm going to hell. Will you tell her she's wrong? I said, Veronica, I can't tell her that. Because I think she's right. I don't think you know Jesus. I said, but if you give me five minutes, my wife and I would love to take you to my office and show you how you could know for sure you'd go to heaven. She paused for a minute. And then big old tears started running down her cheeks. Praise the Lord. And she said, I'd love to know. And she went back. And within just a few moments, accepted Christ as her personal Lord and Savior. How does that happen? How, how does somebody go from being so resistant? How does that miracle take place? It's simple. A bunch of teenage girls that just said, I'm going to do this simple thing. I'm going to fill the water pot. I'm going to do everything I can. And I'm going to trust God to do what only God can. 
little over a year ago, I guess maybe closer to two now, had the opportunity to go over to London and the family that you support that are out of our church, Colin and Callie Hendricks, um, they'd been there for several weeks. We wanted them to do a survey trip and, and, and go and, and really immerse themselves in the culture. I wanted them to be in London. I wanted them to be away from everybody. I wanted them to learn how to, to live in London and, and just make certain that, that the call of God was sure in their life. So we sent them there, and they were there six, seven, eight weeks, whatever. And in about the last 10 days, I, my wife and I went to, to meet up with them. And, and the whole thought was is that when we got there, I wanted them to be able to take me around and show me everything that God had shown them and, and, and that they would be able to take the burden that God had placed in their heart for that six or seven weeks and, and they would be able to relay it to me. So as their sending pastor, I, I could get the same burden that they had. And so we showed up and I'm, I mean, we hit the ground run and it's cool, it's rainy and we're walking all over the city and they're showing us this place and this place and this thing and this thing. And then finally about five or six days in, we, we left and we went to um, the northern borough of London and Enfield, a, a, little, a little borough called Enfield. And, and he, he really had felt that they had felt that God wanted them to, to plant the church in that area. We'd been staying right downtown in, in, in almost central London. And so we got on the tube and it was only about 25, 30 miles to Enfield. But it was about an hour ride on the tube to get there. And as we left central London and we went out to Enfield in that hour, I mean, it's just constant city. London is huge. It's just constant city. And then we come to this borough and we walk around it. And the whole time we're walking around it, in my heart, I'm going, this is exactly, this is exactly where Colin and Callie need to be. This is like the place that I, I could picture in my mind, them in London, this would be the type of place I would picture them. But I didn't say much. We went back and, and he kept trying to, to pull things out of me. What do you think, preacher? What do you think, preacher? What do you think, preacher? And, and I just, I couldn't say much. So I waited till I got on the plane on the way home and obviously had a significant amount of time. And I, I pulled out my iPad and I began to type him a, an extensive email that, that just really shared my heart about the trip. And one of the things that I, I said to Colin is I said, here's the problem I'm having with Enfield. I said, we left where we were staying and when it was on the tube for an hour and passed millions of people that are dying and going to hell so you could go to Enfield and start a church there. So how do you pass all of these other people to go here? And, and then my heart went even further. How does one family, how does a Colin and a Callie Hendricks, how do they go to a place like London and how do you even make a dent in a place where it's so lost and there's so many people that they could grow a church of thousands and, and, and it just be a tiny little dent in, in, in that culture, in that world over there. So, so what in the world are they to do? And then God brought my mind back to this text. And here's what I told him. You go to Enfield. And you just fill the water pot. And you just do what you can do. I don't, I don't know where it's all going to end up. But here's what I know. 
God's going to show up and do the miraculous. God's going to show up and do the supernatural. I have no idea how one family can go to that area surrounded by so many lost areas and make an impact. But God does. He knows how water can be turned to wine. He knows how to raise the dead back to life. He knows how to cause the blinded eye to see. Our God knows how to do the miraculous. In fact, that's kind of what He does. He's a miracle-working God. So how does this apply to you? It's Missions Month. Have you ever wondered, how in the world is my $75 a week going to matter? How's that going to make a difference? How's my $100 a week going to make a difference? How's my $10? Maybe some of you kids, my $3 a week, how's that going to make a difference? It's going to make a difference when you do exactly what this text tells you to do. Follow the command. Do what He told you to do. Don't ask questions. When, when He gives you a number, and I am a firm believer that God, if you pray about it, God will give you a specific number to give to missions. And when He gives you that number, it, it might seem like a big deal, but it's really not. I mean, I don't know how it works on your phone, but in my phone, I've got it set up. It just automatically takes my money out every Sunday or actually every Wednesday, whether I like it or not. And so that's pretty simple. All I see is a text message from David Wood saying, thanks for giving. And I'm like, yeah, I bet you're thankful. (laughs) Every week you take it out. Never do you ask me. It's just the way it works. Simple. Just obey. And I do every bit that God wants me to do. And then I'm going to sit back, just like in this text, and I'm going to trust when I do the common, my God's going to do the uncommon. When I do the natural, my God's going to do the supernatural. God wants to do the supernatural through this church. God wants to do the uncommon through you. Will you do your part? Paving the way for Him to do His part. Every head bowed, every eye closed.